0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the New Books in Economic and Business History, uh, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Ghassan Moazin, one of the hosts of the channel. Um, today, we'll be talking uh, to Dr. Austin Dean, who is assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And we will uh, talk to him uh, about his recent um, book, China and the End of Global Silver, 1873-1937, to 1937, uh, which came out with Cornell University Press uh, in 2020. And is a wonderful study of Chinese monetary reform. During the late 19th and first half of the 20th century, that not only sheds new light on modern Chinese history, but also provides many new insights um, for uh, historians of global history and US history. Uh, So, Austin, uh, thanks so much for taking the time and welcome uh, to the New Books Network.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me and I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
0: Um So Austin, as always, I thought um before we really delve into the book, um whether we could start um by you just talking a bit about how you got into the uh, study of modern China and also into this particular uh topic that you chose uh to work on.
1: Right, I think that's uh a, a complicated question, and I'll try to uh be brief, and I think I don't have any particularly interesting origin story. Uh, as far as how I got in, interested in Chinese history, just taking uh, a class when I was in college. Uh, I was a history major, uh, and I had been exposed to some Chinese history in high school through world history or those kind of big survey classes, but just got very, very interested in it. And where I went to college was a small school in Iowa uh, called Grinnell College. And when I was finishing up uh Grinnell since the 1980s, had this exchange program uh, with Nanjing University uh, to kind of select two graduating students to go over to Nanjing. Um, and I was very fortunate to get one of those kind of postgraduate uh, scholarships and I actually spent two years in Nanjing and just kind of thought, oh, I want to keep learning more about China. Uh, and I think that experience really solidified. Um, my kind of plans to go to graduate school. And then I think as far as the topic, um I think everyone has a circuitous path in one way or another. Um, and something that gets kind of refined over time. Uh but I think perhaps maybe the moment of inspiration was at one point I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do and I was reading Frank H. H. King not one of his books on, uh, the HSBC banks, but the, uh, uh, monetary history book that's, uh, from like 1964. And there was one line about the United States making a silver coin to kind of use in the China market. And it was kind of this one throwaway line, uh, that I thought, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I want to learn more about that. And slowly over time, that kind of turned into um the book after kind of uh, lot's of you know changing of my mind and uh, frustrations and uh back and forth uh but I yeah, think that's uh kind of the perhaps the simplest uh and most direct kind of origin story for my own kind of interest in chinese studies which which just kind of started in college and then for the Topic itself.
0: Yeah, thanks. I mean that. Uh, yeah, it sounds interesting and certainly familiar. I think. Um, yeah, it's really sometimes difficult to sort of pinpoint exactly or have this kind of straight line to the topic, but there can be rather you know random things that one reads. I can certainly, and then gets interested. I can certainly uh, say sort of similar things about myself. Um, so to turn to um, uh, the your your fascinating um, book now. Um, obviously it's all about silver uh, sort of uh, uh, and and the role that China sort of played in, in bringing uh, to an end uh, the the role of silver uh, as sort of an important currency in the uh, world economy um, but as I think that many i mean I think historians of China um, are rather familiar with you know silver as a currency and it's important in the Chinese economy but I think um, I think for everyone else, I wonder whether you could start a bit by discussing, I mean, your your book sort of starts off in the 1870s, but just talking a bit about the role of silver uh, as a currency in the world economy, but also in the Chinese economy before the 1870s.
1: Right. And I think this is a really important point to kind of start out with, that when we think of silver today, if we think about it at all, if you ever watch Bloomberg or CNBC late at night, They'll have like the rare silver coins, right? Uh, that are trying to be sold to people, um, or on the history channel. And I think we only think of it as a curiosity. And I think a lot of what the book is trying to do is to recreate this kind of intellectual material world where kind of silver and its role in the global economy is incredibly important. And I think it's something that starts in the 1500s, um, with kind of uh the discovery of silver mines in potosi and in, uh latin america and kind of silver binding together um china europe uh the uh latin america later the united states uh in kind of serving as a medium of exchange globally and then also uh within the chinese economy as well uh having this most kind of dual circulation uh, currency system with copper coins minted by the state um, and then silver provided uh, by the market that comes in in various forms through Spanish silver dollars, Mexican silver dollars, um, U.S. silver dollars, um, and kind of on and on uh, throughout 1700s and 1800s. And uh, so I think that... Is kind of strange for us to think about. And I think one reason, and this is something I talk about in the introduction of the book, is that, uh, I think there's a lot of focus on the creation of the gold standard, right? How did it work? Why does it spread to where it spread? Why do countries adopt the gold standard, uh, in this period of like the high gold standard from, say, 1880 or so through the First World War? And kind of obscures the issue of silver, which was still very important in China um, and in lots of other places around the world, Mexico uh, and the United States as well. So very much a uh, an important global issue that people all around the world were thinking about uh, in very concrete uh, and serious ways kind of throughout this period of uh, in the late 19th century, as kind of the price of silver for the
0: first time starts to um, decline. Yeah, absolutely. I think particularly your point that there's so much. Um, I think emphasis always on the gold standard in the late 19th century, and there's like tons of literature that you can um, read about that. But I, I guess especially coming from the from a Chinese perspective, that's kind of uh, you know surprising that there's so little on silver. Because if I, I mean, if I read reports on certainly the China trade at that time, the finance between China and Europe, the silver price is always, that's such an important element in all of that and, and, and how silver um, is doing. Um, I, thought, I think one thing we should touch upon, uh, and you've already sort of started off on that, but um, we should probably really explain that, uh, as you say, in China, there was kind of, uh, you know, you had copper coins that were used and minted uh, by the government. And then the s- silver sort of, was not really, um, under government, uh, control. Um, and I wonder whether you could talk uh, a bit more about that, but also, um, I mean, I don't want to get into too much sort of, um, uh, technicalities, but I think we should probably explain this whole idea, especially because you just uh, mentioned Frank King's book. That was one of the first places I, I learned about this, about the tail, I mm-hmm. sort of this, 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 this empty ghost unit of, 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 um, Um, of currency in China that existed and the actual money that was, Mm -hmm. the silver money that was actually used and how these two relate to each other. So I wonder Mm -hmm. whether you could talk briefly about that.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, uh, we could talk a long time about this. I'll try to be quite quite short. Um, At kind of the simplest level, you had, let's say, copper coins with kind of holes in the middle of them so they could be strung together that were made by various provincial mints. And those served, again, in general, in kind of, uh, local level trade, regional trade, where silver, um, which again was provided by international trade in the market, um, uh, was sometimes in ingots or chunks, or sometimes in silver coins of Mexican silver dollars, uh, or U.S. silver dollars. And then there were these, kind of abstract units of account known as tails. Um, and there wasn't just one or two, there were a lot, uh, that depended on kind of where you were. There was a Shanghai commercial tail in most kind of major trading ports, uh, in market towns had kind of their own commercial unit of account, uh, which is kind of an abstraction, right? And then, um, uh, the kind of the rule of thumb, uh, was that a kind of a Mexican silver coin, uh, for example, could satisfy like 0.72 of a tail unit of account in Shanghai, but that could differ in, uh, the time of the year, kind of the supply and demand of money, uh, and then also the ratio between copper and silver coins could also change a lot uh depending on uh numerous factors uh that can change over the course of the year and then also uh many years uh as well. So I think uh that's kind of one I think perhaps a barrier uh to try to wrap your head around because it seems at at the outset quite um unfamiliar, but then I think as you mentioned, when you're reading, especially Merchant magazines, one source I looked a lot about or looked a lot into was the uh, American Asiatic Association uh, and kind of this network of traders who are very concerned about uh, all of these issues and uh, kind of to get your um, kind of head around it, you need to spend a little time. And I think that's why the book, the first chapter of the book is just kind of laying this all out. Right. It's quite short um, because in my mind, I wanted to appeal to people uh, beyond the field of modern Chinese history who probably don't know the ins and outs uh, of all this. And just to kind of set the scene, nothing quite too long, uh, not too much detail, but just to try to get everyone on the same page um, before going forward.
0: Yeah, no, wonderful. I think yeah, that that was a, a wonderful explanation. I think of um, of the different units, but I mean, I, I also should say that the the first chapter in your book really is a is a really good overview, and I would think primer on the the sort of uh, Qing monetary system that really um, sets uh, things up quite well for the rest of the book. Um, I thought so. So to delve in then into um, I think into that first chapter, uh, I think one point that um, I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about—is that, of course, you give sort of an overview, um, but you also talk start talking uh, already in chapter one a bit about um, certain Chinese officials, sort of from the mid nineteenth um, century, getting a bit concerned about the Chinese monetary system and thinking about. Um, Possible ways of reforming it that things should be changed. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about, you know, why did Chinese officials sort of? I mean, we have this monetary system that you so nicely um, described with copper and silver, but in the 19th century, why did some Chinese officials think that maybe there needed to be some kind of change?
1: Hmm. Yeah, And I think this is a really important background. And here, I will—if if people listening to this haven't read the book *China Upside Down*. Uh, by Lin Man Hong. I really recommend, um, that book, which is in some ways kind of a prequel, uh, to my book, uh, looking at especially the, um, kind of what we might call kind of the, the currency crisis of the 1820s, 1830s, when kind of the silver and copper ratio, uh, gets quite disjointed or moved very far away from the historical average. And there's lots of uh, people starting to think about the role of the silver uh, in the Chinese economy, uh, whether it brings more harms than benefits, and then also thinking about how that should change, right? And, uh, and I think that's another book that quite influenced my own thinking. And one goal for me uh, in writing my own book and thinking about, uh, China Upside Down, which I enjoyed a lot and took a lot from, is that I wanted to bring more of the international angle into the center stage. Um, uh, and ha- kind of have, uh, people from Mexico, people from the United States as kind of more, um, more characters in it. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of this key event in, the 1820s 1830s um generally known as like the Daoguang depression uh and kind of the uh the kind of unprecedented uh relationship between uh copper coins and silver um and kind of that spurring an initial wave of thinking about you know how does and should the monetary system of China interact with the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I don't know. I just you know I think we should highlight again what kind of a I think from our perspective now um, it's sort of really strange to think about you know having a country where silver is so important, but actually the state doesn't really have any control over it. It's sort of foreign currency flowing in, um, and they yeah, and, and and I think you know the officials have to try, sort of ask this this ratio between copper and silver gets out of work, they sort of start thinking then uh, you know what what are we going to do about about this and is it actually um beneficial but i really also take your point and i think this is really one of the um things i i really admire and, and i like most about your book is that you really bring in this global international perspective so it is not just a, a story um about china from sort of this you know china centered china focused perspective but rather um, you really uh, bring in this the, the global dimension to all of this. Um, and particularly the United States, of course, um, plays a, a role. And so, I mean, I think in the book we can see that sort of in, in chapters two and chapter three, you sort of, I think you even say it like, uh, you, you bring the two strands sort of, you set up sort of the two strands of your narrative uh, and then chapter two first, uh, and chapter three, it looks at China, of course, but chapter two looks at the United um, States. And tells this, I think, really uh, interesting uh, story about the, the the U.S. trade dollar. And I think that that was what you were sort of referring to in the in the Frank King book as well. Um, so I, yeah, I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about you know the, the global context that you bring in in chapter two, but in particular the story of the trade dollar because I think it's a it's a fascinating story that is really not known well enough by by people.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, I'm glad that that because that story was kind of the impetus of the whole project that it plays the role of kind of the the launching off chapter um after the introduction. And I think this is one area where I really oh and hopefully also contributing something to US history, um, where um kind of the two angles I set up is kind of the international angle, places like the United States uh, Great Britain, Japan wanting to have more of a role, uh, uh, perhaps influencing Chinese monetary system or having control over the Chinese monetary system versus kind of internal efforts within China, thinking about how the currency system should change. And I think in the that first chapter is kind of setting up this story of the United States creating this coin to try to use in the China market. To replace the Mexican silver dollar as the coin of coin of choice, and it's also kind of very much in the context of American political economy at the time, where the same kind of act, the coinage Act of eighteen seventy three that creates the trade dollar also you know several several years later become known as the crime of seventy three for kind of taking the u s off of bimetallism, putting it on gold standard and plays a huge role in the discourse of late 19th century U.S. kind of domestic politics. And I'm trying to hopefully add something to that by talking about the story of the the trade dollar and how it kind of has, um, in some ways, is unsuccessful, right? It doesn't take take hold, really, in the China market. A lot of these coins um, are still circulating in the United States. Um, which causes its own kind of set of problems. And I think it also shows what we might call kind of the arrogance of the United States, uh, where all the people advocating for this measure say that it will work wonderfully. And then several years later, you have all these consular reports coming in uh, from American consular officials throughout China saying, well, we have never seen uh, a trade dollar here. Uh, and we doubt uh, it will ever take hold. And I think that we see a similar attitude kind of throughout um, uh, the rest of the story with kind of American officials and perhaps Japanese officials uh, and uh, British officials kind of overestimating uh, their ability uh, to kind of influence uh, these things. But I think it's I think it particularly stands out in the U.S. case. Um, And the trade dollar is kind of an interesting um, origin story uh, of that. To kind of offer a simple solution and completely overestimate the uh, expected results.
0: Yeah, I mean, you already – yeah, it really is a fascinating story. Um, But I want to – I mean – you, you already said that it failed, and it kind of didn't work out as uh, as I guess people in the u s um had hoped um but do we actually uh, i mean could you talk a bit about like why it didn't work out, but also um what the response in china was i mean was it was that received at all were people just you know not caring about it all yeah, or I was think it that actually there, it does take hold a bit in the kind of
1: areas around Hong Kong into Fujian, um, Xiamen, and other places. However, um it is traded at a discount to the Mexican silver dollar. And then also there were some complaints that it was kind of too heavy and too fine a coin, so it would be melted down for its bullion as well. So I think there are multiple um kind of factors at play. And then especially in kind of the northern areas of the country, where silver did not circulate northern and central areas of the country. Where again, in general, silver didn't circulate as much as on kind of, we'll say, the south and southeast coast. Um, these are all, um, factors and various kind of U.S., uh, consular officials tried to say that they will only conduct business using U.S. trade dollars but that's not a tenable uh, position Uh, and try to get people to get merchants to stop putting kind of chop marks uh, on the coin, kind of these symbols uh, to attest to kind of that the coin is not counterfeit, that merchants kind of had their own chop marks that uh, they would use. And that effort also kind of comes to naught. Um, So I think, uh, there are various uh, factors t- about kind of the coin itself, the existing situation in various um, cities, and kind of existing practices as well.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, I think it generally also speaks uh, to the fact how difficult this, it is to sort of bring in a new currency and try to replace a sort of something like the Mexican dollar, for example, that has been used for so long. Um,
1: I think but, I think inertia yeah. inertia is a powerful force, uh, mm-hmm. uh, especially in kind of the uh, matters such as these.
0: Sure. Yes. And then, I mean, and then the, the the whole experiment is also sort of aborted rather, I mean, relatively quickly by the end of the 1880s. It sort of, as you as you explain, it sort of uh, it comes to an end. Um, but certainly, we can sort of see then. I think from from chapter two in your book that um, you know the U.S. is very people in the U.S. are aware of the, the sort of the monetary system in China, of course, and they try to have some kind of uh, impact um, on it. And I think that sort of sets up the story that will follow in the chapters thereafter, and the U.S. role quite um, nicely. Um, but then in chapter three, of course, you uh, you do return uh, to China, and I think it's a sort of sort of a wonderful discussion of particularly the self-strengthening movement, so this movement for um, you know trying to modernize China um, from the 1860s to the 1890s, roughly, um, by certain reformers, um, and uh, the, the sort of the role that monetary reform, which I think is really sort of within the self-strengthening movement, we're always talking about military reform and and, and, and things like that, but not much um, on, on sort of what the monetary side of this is. And I think that is really something that you bring up really um, nicely in Chapter 3. So I wonder whether you could sort of talk a bit more about, um, you know, within the self-strengthening movement, this effort to sort of modernize China, what monetary reform, uh, what role it actually plays in that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think I really agree about kind of the, the position of the self-strengthening movement. And then also, I think we have this story of, you know, importing machines, trying to build arsenals, and we focus a lot on shipbuilding and other types of, um, kind of areas, but there was also machines to make money, right? And, um, so I think this, that initial kind of story is looking at, in my mind, kind of trying to reform or change the existing um, kind of monetary arrangements as is by the government essentially starting to mint its own silver coins, which it had not really done before, right? And uh, the impetus, like a lot of the other movements in the self-strengthening uh, kind of era, often start from provincial officials, right? Li Hongzhang, Zhang Zidong, and others. and they are kind of the the lead forces who say that you know why are we using foreign money right uh this is a loss to us um we should have we should import this equipment establish uh kind of new mints to make silver and have our own kind of coins right and in my mind this is kind of a big change right um not as much uh as some of the reform proposals as later, um, but still quite significant. And I think that, uh, it starts out and because it's advocated for by provincial officials, provincial officials are the ones who are overseeing it. And that also in some ways leads to some of the problems, right? Um, where the coins, um, would have kind of the, uh, on them themselves would have Uh, kind of the province they were minted in, right? And there were lots of worries about uniformity, right, uh, among the different provinces. And you see, quite interestingly, that, you know, there would be a discount in exchange from a silver coin from Guangzhou or wherever it might be. If it got to the Nanjing area, right, that would not be taken uh, or there would be a discount, right? You would get a haircut uh, if you wanted to uh, change to copper or kind of do any other financial transactions, right? And so I think kind of the impetus of the uh, kind of this desire of provincial officials to mint money um, also uh, kind of foreshadows the problems and this eventual downfall. And we do see kind of a, a movement in the self, in kind of 1898, uh, the 100 days reform period in the Guangxu Emperor to kind of centralize some of this, shut down several mints, right? But again, provincial officials are able to kind of lobby their case about well, why their mint should stay open, right? And I think we see, uh, it's kind of a, in a way, a microcosm of uh, important issues in the political economy. Of the self strengthening period where you have so much um kind of of the initial uh movement happening from provincial officials, but that also creates um lots of other um problems in terms of trying to have standardization or unification um or things
0: like that yeah yeah I'm Again, I think I think the way you really explain that in the book is 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 wonderfully uh, uh, done and really really interesting. Um, I think it's also I mean just to sort of draw that out a bit more, um, this sort of dynamic that you talk about between provincial attempts to um, uh, uh, sort of bring about monetary reform and then the central uh, government—that is sort of obviously a dynamic um, again that we see. Often, when you know we discuss the self-strengthening movement, but not really from the monetary side. Um, what I also wonder whether, uh, as you found very interesting, is of course that this also has larger implications of, sort of the relation between the Qing government and the economy. Um, and I wonder, you know, whether you, so what what your thoughts on that are? Because I think we can see, you know, if there's a change of, um, I suppose one could say more intervention by the central, by generally by by government, Uh, be that provincial government or the central government in the economy that we really haven't seen so far. Right.
1: No, and I think uh, we see this across the self-strengthening movement with um, various types of companies being formed, um, banks in here. I think I would definitely point readers to the book by Stephen Halsey, uh, Quest for Power, uh, kind of Qing Statecraft uh, in the late 19th century, and I believe, um, tai Su Zhang of Yale University is having a, will have a new book out soon about kind of shifts in the Qing fiscal state, uh, kind of at this period of we might, again, depending on the word you want to choose, um, activism or intervention. Um, I think we see this in lots of areas, um, that's trying to win back tariff, um, reform, uh, tariff autonomy, uh, as, uh, Philip Tai has studied. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, especially in the 1870s, 1880s going forward, we do see, I think, uh, important shifts in terms of, again, what we might call activism or intervention or state building or state capacity, depending on how you want, what definition and term you want to, uh, to latch on
0: to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, again, I think that is something that also comes out when you've kindly mentioned all these other works. but it really comes out of your book, uh, I think very nicely uh, as well. Um, all right. And so, so I think, uh, you know, in chapters two and three, you sort of set the U S side of the story and the Chinese side of the story up really nicely, but they then sort of come together in, in, in chapter four. And I think that's, um, uh, really fascinating read as well. Uh and um I mean I think sort of the two aspects that I, I found probably most interesting in chapter four are first of course the Boxer indemnity, mm-hmm. which I think again is not primarily thought of in terms of currency reform, but it's actually, you know, there is sort of a very important seed that is put in there. Um and I think the other side of the story is this 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 American Commission Jeremiah Jenkins and mm-hmm. so on, mm-hmm. um, but I think first we we can probably start off. Of course, you know there was sort of the Boxer Rebellion, 1899-1900, uh, and then you have a foreign intervention, and then there's this big indemnity that China has to pay to these foreign powers. Um, but I wonder whether you could talk about a bit about you know what was the role the Boxer Indemnity in actually furthering currency reform and also foreign involvement in Chinese currency reform?
1: Right. So yeah, this is really important. Where I think we the Boxer Rebellion is obviously a huge topic in Chinese history, but I think the kind of initial aftermath of the first couple years after the Boxer Protocol is signed, uh maybe doesn't get as much attention, particularly in terms of how the indemnity is going to be paid. And in is the indemnity denominated in gold? Or is it denominated in silver? And kind of controversies about that. And again, to kind of simplify, um, you know, there's this controversy that, uh, evolves where some people within, in the Qing dynasty argue that the indemnity is not a debt in gold, it's a debt in silver, right? What happens over the first couple of years is that in order to procure the gold uh, on the international market that uh, the Qing needs to satisfy the indemnity. They have to sell a lot of silver, um, on the market. And in especially 1901, 1902, we see a kind of further, pretty acute drop in, uh, the price of silver in relation to gold. And if that continued, and if the boxer indemnity, uh, was a debt in gold, it would get harder and harder for the Qing to uh, pay off that debt as kind of about the, the ability of silver to procure gold, uh, continued to plummet, right? So, uh, within, um, again, provincial officials in the Qing at the time, uh, start to argue that, well, if you really look at the actual boxer protocol, right, uh, and the list of, uh, payments, it just listed in tails, right? So they argue that Oh, it's a dead and silver. The inspectorate of the maritime customs, Sir Robert Hart, who's very involved in all of these, basically says, no, you're wrong. Uh, and all of the other diplomats say, no, we don't agree. Uh, but eventually the Qing, again, more or less stop paying, right, uh, in gold. And the, this is, in some ways, the origin, one of the origins of this American commission, um, that is kind of a joint commission that initially Mexico uh under Porfirio Diaz and the finance finance minister in Mexico Jose Limontur, kind of call jointly Mexico and the Qing uh call in the United States to try to do something about the price of silver, and the u s is very involved in this because u s is also a major producer of silver um mostly in Nevada where i'm from uh and uh, so I think that's kind of the U.S. connection. And the U.S. sees this as a um way to increase its kind of power in the global financial system um, uh, and also uh, as a lead in to kind of grow the trade with China. Right. Um, so I think they have the U.S. Um, has multiple uh motivations uh, under the secretary of state, John Hay. Uh, at the time. And it's, in a lot of ways, it's a very strange story where, you know, this group of Americans first go to Mexico, then they go to Europe, and then, uh, because they don't have enough money, they only send one member of the commission, uh, to China. This guy, uh, Jeremiah Jenks, who was a Cornell University professor. And he meets with everybody, right? Uh, he, uh, you know, he meets with, he has an imperial audience, he tours the country, uh, he meets with John Zhidong, he meets, uh, with, you know, lots of officials, and the chapter is kind of discussing about how do, how does the Qing government and observers kind of understand what this gold exchange standard proposal would mean, um, and whether or not they could and should uh, adopt it, right? And again, in some ways, it, it's a, perhaps a story of failure because Jinx, the, like the Qing obviously does not adopt the gold exchange standard, Um but I think I interpret it not so much as a failure, but in a lot of ways setting the terms of the big intellectual, political, and economic issues for the next 35 years or so um where in contrast to chapter 3 which is all about minting silver coins right this is a much different intellectual world right in terms of trying to establish a gold exchange standard um and so i think that is um the uh, kind of this turning point in where kind of the, the international and the domestic threads really come together um in this period around you know nineteen o three nineteen o four nineteen o five um and in a lot of ways uh the next thirty years are talking about the gold exchange standard, the gold standard, the silver standard, or just paper currency itself, right uh to kind of completely uh get off any kind of metallic um backing to the currency system. Yeah. And I
0: think this, um, yeah, the sort of J- Jenks kind of uh, journey throughout China and all, all these meetings, I think that comes up sort of a really rich sort of description in, in, uh, in your book. But, uh, because you say that in the end, of course, yeah, China does not um, adopt the gold standard. And um, yeah, one could, I guess, say that, uh, again, obviously you it depends on how you interpret it, but um, could uh, I mean, why do you think that they, in the end, you know, all these important people met with Jenks and so on, but but why, why was it in the end um, not really, not really a success uh, uh, story in the sense of at least getting China to really change its 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 monetary system and, and adopt the gold standard?
1: Yeah, I think like any question, that's probably several factors at work. The um, I think the main stated reason by Zhang Jia and others is that. This would be giving foreigners in some ways too much control. That one of Jenks's proposals is that uh, there would be kind of uh, certain foreign experts to come in to set up the system um, and kind of administer it. And as well as uh, there would have to be a loan taken out to like um, kind of provide the funds to make the initial shift, uh, which would beyond perhaps onerous and unfavorable terms. And um, I think another reason that I don't flesh out as much in the book, but I kind of, uh, another interpretation is that it would take quite a lot of power away from provincial officials, right? Um, Again, thinking about kind of the contours of the political economy in the 1890s, early 1900s, that mints were, under the control of provincial officials, right? And while well, in theory, you know, they have to report everything back um, to the Board of Revenue, later the Ministry of Finance, uh, that, you know, or, there was plenty of room for other um, uh, kind of action. So I think a truly standardized gold exchange standard would have really taken a lot of authority away from People like John Jodong, who in his memorials, he writes two memorials to the, um, uh, to the central government about his meeting with Jinx. He doesn't really mention that. But again, that's kind of just a, a suspicion I have thinking about kind of these, the, the broader relationship between the, um, kind of provincial and central government, um, in terms of Again this kind of push and pull and tug of war of of power.
0: Yeah, no I mean I, I I absolutely I think you know, concur with that because I think a lot of the you know, a lot of reform efforts generally during that period that we see, they often I think run into this problem that, you know, greater centralization means less power for the um with all these strong you know, provincial governors like Jiang Zedong uh, for example, uh, and and they are not necessarily they're probably not going to say it openly, but they're not not that happy to to actually um, um, give in. And especially in public finance, of course, by that time, the early 20th century, there's a lot of leeway that the that the that the provinces have, and they certainly don't you know they don't report everything uh, to Beijing uh, quite quite clearly. Um, yeah, but uh, because you just mentioned, you know, the one of the problems with that uh, w- w- with the proposal was that um, uh, the Qing didn't want to take on a loan, a foreign loan, for for this purpose. But uh, a few years later, then, as you sort of uh, to move to chapter five, you actually do uh, discuss a loan that is taken out. or well, almost, I guess, but at least it's, it's concluded. Um, uh, the currency reform and development loan uh, uh, that is um, uh, signed with a. Social or foreign banks that is supposed to actually help with uh, currency reform, but then uh, you know timing-wise, it's probably the worst timing (laughs) possible because of course in 1911, then um, the Qing falls and you have the 1911 revolution, and it never really um, gets anywhere. But uh, in terms of at least you know properly floating the loan and actually doing what was set out, but um, still, I think you know out of what you describe in terms of the negotiations for the currency reform loan and. And what was, what it was supposed to do, um, it tells us a lot about foreign involvement again, uh, in Chinese currency reform. Uh, so I wonder whether you could talk a bit more, like, what was this loan? Why was it, um, actually, um, signed and, and, and why did it not, you know, in the end come to fruition? Right.
1: So yeah, think I agree that this is a fascinating kind of area and gets very close to a lot of your own, uh, research as well. Um, and I think for me, to maybe zoom out a little bit, I think in this chapter, in the next chapter, I spent a lot of time thinking about having some type of narrative vehicle, um, to get through the chapters because it's covering the late Qing into the early republic, right? There's lots of things going on. How can I provide continuity? And I thought, and I decided that the story of this loan does a good job because it takes you kind of from like 1909 or so through the early 1920s. Um, and to kind of again simplify it, um, uh, these banking consortiums, uh, emerged in kind of this period, uh, groups of banks, um, from different countries coming together, uh, to loan money, uh, to the Qing dynasty and, um, the Americans, tried to kind of elbow, the, elbow their way in. Uh, uh, and uh, there's this, a number of loans that are talked about. Uh, uh, kind of the other very famous one uh, that is signed with it at the same time as the loan of this book that I study in the book is the Huguang uh, Railway Road, which a lot of people point to as a factor leading to perhaps, you know, uh, the kind of quick downfall of the chain Um, and the currency reform and development loan is this loan that's originally agreed to provide funds to unify the, uh, currency system on the silver standard, right? And it's signed, um, and agreed to. And the question, though, is it goes back to this authority, right? How much, how much role do these foreign bankers have on signing off on the chain currency proposals, right? Um they during the negotiations there's you know, saying, Oh well, the foreign bankers want nine months to review it and the Qing say, Well, we've had these regulations out for a year. Why haven't you looked at them already? Um so there's all this kind of delay and back and forth in the go and kind of positioning for leverage and right when the bankers like approve the loan in um uh, a month later uh, approved to say that they're going to float the loan within six months' times. Within four weeks, kind of the Wuhan uprising breaks out. And then a couple of months later, uh, the Qing dynasty no longer exists. And so then kind of the rest of the chapter is negotiations about the loan, um, whether to continue it, um, and then also how it relates to other really important Loans at this time, the reorganization loan. Uh, you have a lot of action where, uh, the United States, when President Woodrow Wilson, uh, comes into office, they leave this banking consortium. Uh, and then three years later they come back. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, Japan is trying to kind of take advantage of the situation, uh, through kind of the, this figure, uh, Nishihara, who is also trying to um kind of gets uh chinese currency reform to happen under the guidance or control of japan uh and it becomes this kind of even though the loan never gets made it becomes every seemingly six months or so there's this kind of crisis in all these capitals around the world what are we going to do uh because uh the Qing dynasty Agreed to this term in the original contract that it can extend the the period when bankers had to make the loan in six months increments. So initially they, the Republican government extends it to no problem, but then by 1915, 1916, it becomes much more contentious and it becomes, uh, uh, uh this, uh, very thorny issue between the United States Japan, uh, Great Britain, um, and the various kind of governments in this period of the 1910s. And it's quite interesting that, you know, even at the Versailles Peace Conference, right, there are, uh, discussions about this consortium. Uh, and it kind of, it appears, um, everywhere, uh, this consortium in this currency and development world. And, uh, I think it speaks to what I call the intensification of this issue, right? Of kind of the, especially the imperial, what we call the imperial, uh, ambition of different countries to play what they would call the leading role in shepherding, uh, Chinese currency reform that we see from the U.S. angle. And I think we especially see, um, from the Japanese, um, Government at the time, uh, just a year, year and a half or so after the 21 demands, you have the kind of various, uh, Nishihara loans, um, that, uh, you know, cause further, um, uh, kind of, uh, issues in capitals, uh, around the world.
0: Yeah. And I think the, uh, I mean, uh, uh, as you say, sort of what is really, um, I think what what the chapter really and these sort of how you trace the story of this loan you know, really brings out um, nicely is, is you know what important that that that, that people in sort of in in you know Western foreign high politics really were very concerned with this whole Chinese currency question and you know as you say who gets to gets to play a leading role in in all of this what foreign power um, all of that is really uh, you know plays an important part again and which I don't think you know many people know about or. Um, Pay attention to, uh, when you read sort of accounts, for example, of, you know, as you say, the Versailles Peace Conference, for example, that's not something, uh, you know, Chinese currency is probably not something that we immediately think about, but, um, it really is quite, quite a significant, um, topic. Um, and I think, yeah, again, this, this, the chapter really, uh, brings that out, uh, nicely. Um, and I think then, nevertheless, sort of when, when we move to, to chapter six, I think, um, uh, we then sort of, Come more to a, sort of bring this more to the on the ground level. Because there's this wonderful case, you know, of the of the new mint that is set up in Shanghai, the Shanghai Mint, uh, and you sort of look at um, the role that the mint plays, uh, sort of in the 1920s and 1930s, and trying to again do currency reform in China, um, but this time, of course, as we said, there was sort of all there was not really a silver standard in China. It was sort of all kinds of different. Units of currency, and um, in in chapter six we look at you know how the Shanghai Mint is used uh, to try and bring about a um, unitary uh, silver standard. Um, and I think it's really nice that you know you use this particular case and, and really show the sort of technicalities of all of this and and and, and the role uh, and sort of the in order to show sort of the larger efforts of bringing about um, a unitary silver standard. Um, so I wonder whether you can talk a bit more about you know what was the idea behind this mint uh, and what was the role in bringing about a silver standard and also why were people you know interested in actually having one unitary silver standard
1: yeah so i think this is again i kind of in my mind the the mint was kind of the narrative vehicle to wrap a lot of changes around because this is the period when we see the nationalist government consolidate power um in 27 28 um we see kind of the initial stages of the great depression right we see um a further drop in kind of the price of silver uh, on the world market and kind of using the mint uh as a lens to kind of tile these things together um was my in my mind how i wanted to kind of structure the chapter and i think that the idea of the people at the time who were kind of the force behind the mint in the early 1920s and especially later in the the latter period of the 1920s when it actually becomes known as the Central Mint is that like because the Shanghai tail was so important right that um if you can have a standard unit of currency or coin in Shanghai because Shanghai has so much what we might call market power or market influence, that will impact other places, right? And kind of uh, help standardize and kind of uh, further um, kind of make tail units of account unnecessary. And so that's kind of the initial impetus of that in the early 1920s. And then as in 1923, 24, 25, the kind of Chinese politics gets very, um, uh, Not yeah, sure what adjective to use to complicate it. You see ministers of finance coming to go, coming and going quite quickly. Like all the, the mint, like they build a floor of it, right? And they don't really get up and running. They run out of money. Um, and there's no more money. Uh, but then when the nationalists come into power, they kind of, um, revamp the mint. They finish building it. You can actually still go there in Shanghai. Uh, the mint is still there. Um, and they bring back kind of the foreign technical expert, um, American guy, uh, named Clifford Hewitt, uh, who had been, uh, running the, the mint in the Philippines. And then, uh, at the same time, when the mint gets going in kind of 27, 28. There's again, um, this big discussion about, well, what kind of currency system do we want? Like, should we try to go on the gold exchange standard? Should we stick to silver? Right? Um, and we have this kind of similar debate again. Um, but it plays out now in the context of the initial period of the Great Depression, right? Um, Uh, where there is another kind of U.S. mission by a Princeton professor, Edwin Kemmerer, um, who goes and, uh, tries to give the nationalist government financial advice on a whole host of issues of a currency being one of them. And he recommends the gold exchange standard. And, uh, this is an interesting quirk that all the machinery, uh, that was on, uh, in the mint, in 1929, 1930 was all for minting kind of old style silver dollars, right? So if they did that, if they wanted to, if the government wanted to call them the gold exchange standard, they would need new dyes and things like that. Dyes are kind of the, the thing that makes the imprint, um, uh, on the coin. So it's a very, um, kind of fraught process and uh, eventually they kind of uh, the nationalist government, uh, and especially the Minister of Finance, uh, Song Zewen or TV Song, um, decides to go to kind of try to unify on the silver standard, because in the midst of the Great Depression, uh, when people, when countries are going off the gold standard, uh, especially in kind of 1931, it's not a good time at all to try to go on the gold standard. Um, and I think that, um, those initial years of the Great Depression, um, uh, uh, are just one of incredible flux, um, that, um, is the case. I think it's well known that that is true in places like England that goes off the gold standard, I believe in September 1931, Japan in December 1931, but maybe perhaps not as these kind of internal debates are not as well known in kind of the China case, which is actually perhaps considering going on the gold standard when the rest of the world is going off the gold standard. Um, so like that, um, that's kind of the, the narrative vehicle there. And kind of the way that chapter ends is that the nationalist government does kind of get rid of the different tail units of the count and the Shanghai Mint does open, um, but the coin it makes uh, kind of reminds people of, uh, it's kind of a rising sun in the background with kind of birds overhead, uh, and it reminds people of Japanese planes that had recently kind of bombed uh, Shanghai. Um, So it's, uh, it's again, a story of kind of increase centralization uh by the um a nationalist government but also still uncertainty and kind of unresolved debates um uh, about uh, what type of monetary system to have and why
0: yeah exactly and uh i think that whole story then that we sort of see uh, throughout the book and in terms of um you know, more centralization, I guess, greater uh, role for the state, but also still the questions of how exactly um, are we going to figure out how, what, what currency China should actually have. I think all of that sort of culminates then in, in, in chapter seven when you uh, talk about the um, the Fabi, of course, the, the new currency that's brought in 1935. Um, and uh, with the Fabi reform, then, in the sense, as you, I think, very convincingly argue, that really brings to to the end the the this this sort of really important role that um, Silva so plays uh, in the global economy um, and China as well, of course. So um, I, I guess just sort of as a start, it would be good if you you know could explain a bit what the Fabi actually is, because I think again, people not familiar with China or Chinese history probably don't uh, really know. Uh, and then what was the idea betwe- behind this reform and, uh, and yeah, in, in general, and, and how successful was it?
1: Right. So, yeah, the FABI is, um, essentially, um, going off of the silver standard, uh, in kind of the simplest, uh, explanation. And, uh, the, in November of 1935, the nationalist government starts to kind of promise to buy and sell dollars and pounds at, uh, kind of stated rates of exchange. Um, and that's kind of the, mechanism uh, that is, in a sense, backing the new currency, and kind of the path to that is, again, heavily influenced by the Depression and also the United States, um, where there's a thread of argument in the United States that the reason the world is in a depression is that uh, China is on the silver standard, what some American politicians call the loincloth Uh, standard of living. Right. And that because China has so many um, people, but they aren't able to buy enough products, right, that global commerce has come to a halt. And that's a particularly um, uh, that's uh, especially certain uh, U.S. senators, especially one key Pittman from Nevada, um, uh, who's a very influential senator on the kind of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, this is his kind of theory of the depression, right? That, well, the reason we're in a depression is because people in China, uh, the purchasing power of their, uh, of silver, it just has continued to fall. And if we raise the price of silver, the, um, people in China will start buying more stuff and then the depression will be over, right? Um, and he is arguing this in kind of 32, 33, and he becomes influential. And again, this is perhaps, we don't need to get too much into the internal politics of the United States at the time. Uh, but there is kind of this thing called the Silver Purchase Act of 1934. It's basically the U.S. pledging to buy silver on the world market at above market rates until it reaches a certain kind of price. Or that it forms a certain percentage of like U.S. reserves, right? So it's basically a huge silver buying campaign. And a lot of people, observers in China have said, you know, this is not going to work out the way you think it will. Um, and that, um, uh, there are many factors working, uh, in the global economy and we shouldn't have a silver focused uh, interpretation of this economic crisis. Um, and that it will, kind of bring more harm to China than benefits as silver might flow out of the country and uh cause a lot of hardships um internally and lead to actually deflation. Um and that's more or less what happens. Uh we're gonna get trying to simplify uh over uh kind of summer, fall nineteen thirty-four and then into nineteen thirty-five and and then the question becomes for internally within the nationalist government, well, what to do and how to do it. Right. Um, and it's in some ways their hand is forced. And in some ways all of these kind of debates and discussions that have been percolating uh, for 30 years um, kind of culminate. And essentially what happens is that the nationalist government sends a uh, representative to the United States to essentially say, well, buy our silver, give us dollars, and we will have this, um, kind of new Fabi, which the, uh, Secretary of the Treasury at the time, uh, Secretary Morgenthau, there's this sense that, oh, this is, there's a sense in the United States that, well, this is the moment that the U.S. has been waiting for, right? Um, uh, I think, again, It was kind of uh, an overly optimistic reading of the situation, Um, but essentially that that a lot of people in China doubt that the government is going to be able to do anything. They essentially doubt the the capacity of the nationalist government to pull it off, especially one figure I focus on a lot, Ma Yen Chu, who is um, kind of one of the, the first generation of Chinese economists, and is actually a member of the Kuomintang party and a member of the government basically says that he doesn't think the government is capable of fixing this situation and that the government is screwed. Uh, and he's a high-ranking official, uh, which is kind of interesting to hear. And I think, kind of, despite doubts within the within China and abroad, when you go back and read the Economist, uh, the Economist magazine from this period, they have their doubts kind of the, the the government pulls it off. And the fa B is you know, quite successful um in kind of thirty five, thirty six in terms of bringing price stability and um also holding the exchange value from say November thirty five really even through the initial period of World War Two into kind of say spring nineteen thirty eight or so, um when uh Japan will kind of uh, establish like a, a federated Bank of Northern China in kind of the the kind of currency war aspect of World War to kind of really reaches its acute uh, acute phase.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's it's sort of always interesting to, to speculate what would have happened, of course, if you know, 1937. You don't have the the start of World War Two in 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 Asia and how the Fabi could have. Um, uh, could have developed because yeah, of course once the, yeah. Uh, you know, after the initial phase of the war, of course it becomes very difficult for the nationalists to sort of maintain the currency. But, uh, as you say, I mean, uh, even though people like mine who were skeptical, it, it actually, um, as you of explained very nicely in the book, uh, it actually works out. Um, in the the beginning, at least before the outbreak of war, um, the Fabi is actually quite uh, successful. Um, But I wonder whether you could talk, I mean, um, you also make, of course, a point in the chapter, but also in the book more generally that this, uh, I mean, first of all, it's very nice how you show that, you know, the sort of interaction with the United States, how that has repercussions for Fabi and the Silver Purchase Act and so on for the uh, decision to to have this Fabi reform. But Course, you also make the point that this reform in China going off the silver standard effectively also ends this era of silver in the global economy. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about, you know, this conclusion that you sort of draw in the book and in this chapter.
1: Right. right. And I think that, you know, this is by this time, China's, you know, the largest country in the world still on the silver standard, Right and as we kind of started to mentioned at the beginning it's you know in kind of the middle of the 1500s when silver starts to play this role in um international commerce and it continues to do so for you know until the mid 1930s and you see other countries at various times um India Mexico um and others go away from bimetallism or go away from the silver standard. And it, it really is China, uh, which is the last country still using, um, silver as kind of the base of its monetary system. So I think that 1935, when the nationalist government switches to, um, the Fa Bi reform, it marks a, obviously a huge change in Chinese history. But I think it does mark this end in the world, this period in world history where, you know, silver starts to kind of fade from public consciousness, right? I think throughout the story I tell, and even, uh, you know, in previous times, right, silver was a incredibly important, uh, topic of discussion for bankers, policymakers, merchants, right, all around the world. And, uh that just I think really stops being the case, uh after um kind of the uh Fabi reforms. And then of course at the end of World War Two you have the Breton Woods system, uh and kind of all these other developments. So I think it is really this hinge um moment, uh and and does kind of uh in some ways mark uh the end of kind of the Kind of the the silver period of world history, if you want to date that to say the the mid-1500s through kind of the 1930s.
0: I think, you know, again, this is sort of very fascinating in how it um, shows that, um, you know, what we... uh, you know, not only does you know the US have an impact, um, or global developments have an impact on um, what is happening in Ch- terms of currency reform in China, but of course also the other way around. Like the the Fabi reform are very much um, a yeah a sort of reflective uh, or sort of reflective of larger processes in in the global economy with the with the end of um, uh, uh, end of sort of the. The importance of of silver in the global economy that it had before, um, so we've sort of very nicely, and you've sort of very nicely taken us through uh, through uh, the different chapters in your book. But I wonder, sort of, as uh, sort of to close uh, up, whether you could maybe ha- want to highlight a bit, sort of briefly, how what do you think this you want to do what you know what your book contributes to both Chinese history, but also I guess US and global history, um, mm-hmm. if you want to do that.
1: Yeah, I think. That I guess I see myself in terms of Chinese history as, uh, uh, one book and I think an emerging number of books focused on, um, kind of state building or state capacity, um, in kind of the late Qing period, um, through the Republican period that, you know, all books I've taken a lot from, um, Ho Wen Kai, The Past of the Fiscal State, the Stephen Halsey book that I mentioned, that all Kind of have the currency issue to the side, right? Um, and not as one of the main focus, um, points. So I think I, I see myself placing myself in that literature, um, within the context of Chinese history. In the context of American history, I'd say I'm hoping to show kind of the, the silver aspect of the U.S. in the world. Kind of the, the silver issue and bimetallism is very, well-studied in kind of internal domestic politics in the U.S., um, but kind of the international aspects of it are not uh, as well known. Um, and then I think, I guess, finally in world history, um, just to kind of hopefully, you know, bring more attention to the story of silver when most people focus on gold. and uh, And this is something that, you know, I teach a world history class, and if you look at most world history textbooks, you know, that are written for survey levels, they all talk about silver in the 1500s and the 1600s, but then the story just kind of fades away. Right. Um, so I see myself as hopefully providing uh, kind of the, the conclusion
0: of that story yeah and uh you know, as i as i also mentioned in the beginning this i think the sort of absence of silver when you know during the late 19th or 20th century when everyone is going on about the gold standard uh it's really quite um obvious and it's sort of you know the, i think that in, in that regard as well as in many others that your book really makes makes an important uh contribution um so austin we've already uh, taken up a lot of your time and um uh I'm just sensitive to of the fact that um and we have done that, but I thought before um we close, I just wanted to ask you, um you know now that this book is done, and um uh it's being read by everyone, uh what you're working on now, so what your next project is and, and, and yeah what what is yeah, in mind there
1: the I think probably like a lot of people uh mm-hmm. out there have been kind of struggling to kind of shape and research agenda given kind of the state of the world where i was wrapping up this book in february march 2020 um and then uh things changed a lot and i don't think i even had access to my library for like six or seven months uh at the university um but i think the next big project is going to be a biography of mine true the economist that i mentioned um where i i kind of read a lot of his stuff and luckily I have his collected works, which are seventeen volumes, uh each like three or four hundred pages. And that's been for the past year and a half or so kind of the main my main source base that I can work with, um, given um kind of again the state of the world. And he's just a fascinating figure, you know, born in the Qing dynasty, studies abroad, serves in the nationalist government, Decamps to the Communists, actually put under arrest by Chiang Kai-shek in World War II. Right, his population theories uh, don't get approved of, and I think the the goal at the moment is to make it kind of a book that could be used in a modern China survey class because his life encompasses kind of the Qing, the Nationalist period, and then the PRC, and then kind of obviously the the population issue has impact today as well um, so that's kind of the big project uh at least in my mind, hopefully the next book, and then uh, a few a few side things, but I think you know, like everyone else, it's thinking about how to do uh a project when you can't travel as much uh is tough where I think this book I was so fortunate to be able to travel everywhere uh and go to archives and uh to think about how how to how to move forward when that's not um not an option at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think especially um yeah China historians or historians working on yeah working globally with archives can i can totally sympathize with that and we all kind of seem to have the same kind of set of problems to confront during the um pandemic but in any case this sounds like a fascinating uh topic and certainly mine too is a fascinating figure i think anyone who has um sort of studied the historical development of the modern chinese economy will have come across his uh his writings of course here and there because he seems to have written about you know so many Everywhere. different things and as yeah. you say <laughs> um his life is, is is such a you know such a fascinating story as well so i think um uh, yeah, we are all looking forward to uh, to to uh, reading uh, about that in your in your future work. Um, but again, it's, it sounds like a great uh, project, and uh, yeah, we look forward to that. Um, so, once again, uh, all that is left to me, Austin, is to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to do the interview today and to tell us about your wonderful book. Um, I really would encourage not just, you know, historians of China, of course, should look at this book, but uh, really also people working on U.S. history and world history. I think you've explained very nicely how, how this is really relevant. And so, I encourage everyone uh, to have a look. So, thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you about the book. Uh, and uh, yeah, goodbye and take care.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate the chance to kind of share my research. Yeah,
0: thank you so much.